Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our December 2011 issue. Let's get started. Low levels of omega-3 fatty acids have been linked to depression and suicide. However, meta-analyses of clinical trials with omega-3 have been inconclusive. Fish oil supplements have two main omega-3 constituents, EPA and DHA. Some authors have observed that supplements with higher proportions of EPA may be more effective against depression. This finding is unexpected, since DHA is the main omega-3 fatty acid in the brain. Dr. Elizabeth Sublette and colleagues designed a meta-analysis to tease out the effectiveness of EPA versus DHA in major depression and to explore dose effects. They identified 15 double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials that administered supplements containing EPA and or DHA. Some studies gave supplements alone. Some augmented standard treatments. The authors found that studies using at least 60% EPA had a significant effect on depression. The overall effect size in DHA-rich supplements was negative, indicating those supplements were generally less effective than placebo. To address dose effects, the authors hypothesized that the active component of fish oil is the amount of EPA in excess of DHA. Their exploratory analysis found that effective doses of unopposed EPA ranged from 200 milligrams to 2,000 milligrams. The conclusion suggested by this meta-analysis is that fish oil supplements containing at least 60% EPA are acutely effective against major depression. This study was partially supported by the National Institute of Mental Health. I urge you to go online to psychiatrist.com to read the commentary David Michelon has provided for two articles, this meta-analysis by Sublette and colleagues, and immediately following, a retrospective case-controlled study by Lewis and colleagues about omega-3 and suicide in the military. Dr. Michelon contrasts the two studies and then reconciles their findings. Suicide rates among active-duty U.S. military have increased to record numbers, rivaling the battlefield in toll on our military. These rapidly rising rates are a sentinel for increased impairment of fighting force efficacy due to mental illness, spurring an accelerated search for reversible risk factors. Low levels of neuroactive omega-3 essential fatty acids, in particular DHA, may be a contributing factor for adverse psychiatric symptoms. Lewis and colleagues posited that low DHA status would be associated with increased risk of suicide among military personnel. 
prospectively collected serum fatty acid data, health data, and psychiatric data from the Armed Forces Health Surveillance Center were examined for 800 active-duty persons who died by suicide and 800 matched controls for the time period of 2002 to 2008 possibly the largest study to date of biological factors among suicide deaths. In adjusted regression analyses, the risk of suicide death was 14% higher per standard deviation of lower DHA percentage. Among men, risk of suicide death was 62% greater with low serum DHA status defined as lower than 1.75%. Risk of suicide death was 52% greater in those who reported having seen wounded, dead, or killed coalition personnel. This U.S. military population had a very low and narrow range of omega-3 fatty acid status. Low DHA status can be readily reversed using low-cost dietary interventions that are likely to have multiple beneficial health effects. Although the data from this study suggests that low serum DHA may be a risk factor for suicide, the authors note that well-designed intervention trials are needed to evaluate causality. This study was supported by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency and the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Our continuing medical education offering for the December issue looks at prevalence rates of diabetes mellitus in people with schizophrenia, which are about twice those in the general population. A group from Spain recently analyzed this relationship in the general population by looking at data from the World Health Survey, organized by the World Health Organization. That survey was made up of nationally representative samples from 52 countries worldwide, and the study sample included over 200,000 adults. The study subjects were interviewed to establish the presence of psychotic symptoms and diabetes mellitus. Weighted and age and sex standardized prevalence estimates were calculated for diabetes in people with and without psychotic symptoms. The analyses showed that as the number of psychotic symptoms increased, so did the likelihood of diabetes. The odds ratio was 1.27. Among people who had a schizophrenia diagnosis, the diabetes rate was a little higher in those who had current psychotic symptoms compared to those who did not have current symptoms, suggesting that the persistence of symptoms could play a central role in this relationship. This study shows that psychotic symptoms are related to increased rates of diabetes in non-clinical samples, independent of several variables, including a clinical diagnosis of schizophrenia, previous antipsychotic treatment, depression, lifestyle, and socioeconomic status. To receive CME credit for this article, visit psychiatrist.com to read the full article and then take the post-test. In the next study, Meltzer and colleagues compared the metabolic effects of olanzapine and risperidone in a prospective, randomized, open-label trial in 160 patients diagnosed with 
DSM-IV-TR schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, or bipolar disorder. After patients were randomly assigned to olanzapine or risperidone, metabolic effects were examined at regular intervals during treatment. The study examined changes in metabolic measures and the ratio of triglycerides to HDL cholesterol, a risk factor for ischemic cardiovascular disease. Secondary analyses included the effect of concomitant valproic acid. Significantly greater increases in metabolic parameters, including the ratio of triglycerides to HDL cholesterol, were observed at all time points except the initial one in olanzapine patients compared to risperidone patients. Olanzapine with valproic acid produced significantly greater increases in metabolic parameters than did olanzapine without concomitant valproic acid. However, risperidone with valproic acid produced significantly smaller increases in certain metabolic measures than did risperidone without concomitant valproic acid. Olanzapine with valproic acid produced greater increases in metabolic parameters than did risperidone with valproic acid. Diagnostic category had no significant effect on metabolic outcomes. The researchers note the importance of further study of the metabolic effects of adjunctive valproic acid on different antipsychotic drugs. Next, we are reminded that excessive video game use among youth has been a growing concern in the United States and elsewhere. The authors considered the problem of video game playing and its relation to psychological functioning in a sample of adolescents who were being treated in an inpatient psychiatric facility. Specifically, they wanted to identify clinical factors underlying problem video game use and identify associations with measures of psychopathology. They also wanted to establish the validity of their newly developed problematic video game use scale in this adolescent sample. The study was conducted at and supported by Bradley Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. 380 participants were administered a battery of self-report measures, including the new problematic video game use scale. A factor analysis of the new scale indicated two primary factors. One was associated with engaging in problem behaviors that impaired the adolescent's functioning as a result of playing video games, and the other reflected the reinforcing effects of playing video games. Both factors were associated with measures of psychopathology, although the associations were generally stronger for impairment in functioning than for reinforcing effects. The problematic video game use scale proved to be a valid measure. These findings, the authors conclude, highlight the importance of understanding an adolescent's motives for playing video games and how these motives might relate to his or her symptomatology. 
In the next study, an international group of researchers sought first to examine the mid-term to long-term data on the efficacy of antipsychotic drugs to determine whether these data are consistent with the quantitative meta-analyses of mostly short-term randomized controlled trials. Their second aim, and the most important, was to use these and other data to provide guidance about the potential relationship of differences among antipsychotics and a patient's own experience with antipsychotics in the process of shared decision-making with patients and their significant others. PubMed, Embase, and PsychInfo databases were searched for double-blind randomized studies published in English between January 1999 and April 2011 that compared olanzapine and ciprazidone, risperidone, quetiapine, haloperidol, flufenazine, perfenazine, or aripipazole. Studies selected had a duration of 12 months or longer, included patients with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, and reported survival analyses for all-cause discontinuation and relapse or dropout due to poor efficacy. The number of patients relapsed due to poor efficacy and the hazard rates for relapses were extracted. The midterm and long-term data suggest that olanzapine is more effective than risperidone and that both of these are better than the other first and second generation antipsychotics except for clozapine, which is the most efficacious of all. Further large differences emerged regarding the specific midterm and long-term safety profiles of individual antipsychotics. Despite interclass differences and the complexities of antipsychotic choice, the second-generation antipsychotics are important contributions, not only to acute phase treatment, but more importantly, to maintenance treatment of schizophrenia. Dr. Yassin and his colleagues point out in the next article that the relationship between comorbid panic and suicide in depressed persons remains unclear. To further our understanding of this relationship, they examine the roles that panic attacks and panic symptoms play in relation to suicidality among depressed persons who participated in the National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions. Their study, funded by the Hope for Depression Research Foundation, included data on almost 2,700 community-dwelling participants with major depressive episode in the past year. The associations of panic attacks and panic symptoms with lifetime suicidal ideation and suicide attempts were assessed. The adjusted odds ratios of suicidal ideation suicide attempt and suicide attempt among ideators in subjects with panic attacks were the primary outcome measures. The results showed that past-year panic attacks were associated with increased risk of lifetime suicidal ideations and suicide attempts, and they significantly increased the risk of suicide attempts among those reporting suicidal ideations. 
some panic symptoms, notably catastrophic cognitions. For example, fear of dying or fear of losing control or going insane were more strongly and specifically associated with suicide attempt, while others were more related to suicidal ideation. The authors conclude that panic attacks appear to be an independent risk factor for suicide attempt among depressed individuals with or without suicidal ideation. Furthermore, panic attacks, particularly those characterized by prominent catastrophic cognitions, may mediate the transition from suicidal ideations to suicide attempts in subjects with depressive episodes. Assessment of these symptoms may improve prediction of suicide attempts in clinical settings. Our next group of authors remind us that treatment guidelines for schizophrenia recommend that medical decisions should be shared between schizophrenia patients and their physicians. However, before shared decision-making can be implemented, It is necessary to know why some patients want to participate in medical decision-making while others do not. Thus, the authors designed a study to help answer this question. To identify determinants of participation preferences among schizophrenia patients and a non-psychiatric comparison group with multiple sclerosis, the authors undertook a cross-sectional survey in four psychiatric and neurologic hospitals in Germany. In patients suffering from schizophrenia or multiple sclerosis, but not both, were consecutively recruited and 203 patients participated in the study. Predictors for patient decision-making participation preferences were identified using a structural equation model. The authors found that patients with schizophrenia who want to participate in decision-making are often dissatisfied with care or are skeptical toward medication. Patients who judge their decisional capacity as poor or who are poorly educated prefer not to participate in decision-making. Future implementation strategies for shared decision-making must address how dissatisfied patients can be included in decision-making and how patients who currently do not want to share decisions can be enabled, empowered, and motivated for shared decision-making. Next, a group of German researchers examined the effects of acute hydrocortisone administration on memory retrieval in patients with major depressive disorder and healthy controls. This was in response to the fact that major depressive disorder has been associated with hypercortisolism, reduced glucocorticoid feedback sensitivity, and impaired memory function. And in healthy subjects, administration of hydrocortisone has been shown to impair declarative memory. In a placebo-controlled double-blind crossover study conducted from April 2008 until April 2010 at two sites in Germany, 44 DSM-4-diagnosed MDD patients and 51 healthy controls received either placebo or 10 milligrams of hydrocortisone orally before memory testing. A word list paradigm and the logical memory test from the Wexler Memory Scale were given. 
Patients with MDD performed worse than controls on both memory tests. Healthy controls showed impaired memory performance after hydrocortisone administration compared to placebo, but hydrocortisone had no effect on memory in MDD patients. Furthermore, in healthy controls, administration of hydrocortisone immediately after learning did not lead to enhanced free recall during increased cortisol levels. The researchers concluded that the impairing effects of hydrocortisone on memory performance appear to be missing in patients with MDD. This finding might be interpreted in the context of reduced central glucocorticoid receptor functioning. Our next article reveals that people who are treated for depression often find that the symptom hardest to overcome is insomnia. Insomnia may hinder patients' ability to achieve full remission and recovery, and its persistence may serve as a risk factor for relapse. Such observations have led researchers to no longer consider insomnia as a symptom that just accompanies depression, but to regard it as a comorbid disorder in its own right. Given this shift in perspective, it follows that targeted treatment is needed for insomnia that occurs in the context of depression. To learn more about this, the authors conducted a study with the aim of investigating the added value of brief behavioral therapy for insomnia over treatment as usual for residual depression and refractory insomnia. They found that adding brief behavioral therapy for insomnia to treatment as usual produced a significantly greater reduction in insomnia than treatment as usual alone. Moreover, in terms of depression, greater improvement in the severity of depression was observed for patients treated with the combined therapy versus treatment as usual alone. The authors conclude that clinicians who see depressed patients with persistent insomnia may consider adding brief behavioral therapy for insomnia to their usual clinical care as the second-line treatment for those who do not respond to adequate pharmacotherapy. To finish out our December summaries, we have five articles from our special section for early career psychiatrists. Offerings from some of psychiatry's new kids on the block, if you will. First, we are reminded that late-life depression is an important public health issue given the growing proportion of the elderly relative to the general population in the developed world. In light of this concern, the purpose of this next study, a meta-analysis, was to examine the efficacy of all antidepressants, old and new, in late-life MDD and to compare antidepressant and placebo response rates from clinical trials in patients with adults non-elderly MDD, and late-life MDD. The authors searched PubMed for randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials of antidepressants in these age groups, cross-referencing the term placebo with each antidepressant that had received a letter of approval by U.S., Canadian, European Union, Japanese, or Australian drug regulatory agencies for treatment of MDD. Seventy-four eligible articles were included on the basis of numerous a priori criteria. 
In their comprehensive analysis, the researchers compared trials in the two age groups. In recognition that there was a 10-year overlap in age ranges for the two groups, they also conducted a secondary non-overlap analysis, comparing adult MDD studies with those in older late-life MDD, thus avoiding the overlap. Antidepressants were found to be efficacious for late-life MDD, age 55 and older, although there was significant heterogeneity across studies, suggesting other contributing factors. Antidepressants were not efficacious in the subset of studies in older late-life MDD, age 65 and older. When the investigators controlled for study design characteristics, antidepressant but not placebo response rates were lower among late-life patients than among non-elderly adult patients. Factors that may moderate antidepressant response in this population require further study. Next, we have an enlightening analysis of the effect of patient beliefs, a project supported by the Massachusetts General Hospital Depression Clinical and Research Program's Clinical Practice Revenues. Patients' beliefs have been shown to exert a significant impact on clinical outcome in areas as varied as asthma, pain, and hypertension. A similar phenomenon is also well documented in psychiatric disorders. Despite this fact, Few clinical studies have directly asked patients about their personal beliefs regarding their assigned treatments. Investigators from Harvard Medical School explored the impact of patients' beliefs by reanalyzing data from a large, double-blind, randomized trial comparing St. John's wort with sertraline and placebo for treatment of major depression. In the original study, published in 2002 in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the three treatment arms showed no significant differences in improvement in the 17-item Hamilton Depression Rating Scale score or in response rates. To confirm the integrity of the study's blinding, subjects were directly asked after eight weeks of treatment which of the three possible treatments they believed they were receiving. The investigators reanalyzed patient guesses against the efficacy data. While assigned treatment had no significant effect on clinical improvement, patient guess was significantly associated with improvement, and there was also a significant interaction between assigned treatment and patient guess. These findings suggest that patient beliefs regarding treatment may have a stronger association with clinical outcome than the actual medication received. However, it may depend upon the particular combination of treatment guessed and treatment received. The authors believe their findings may have implications for utilizing the potentially therapeutic effects of patient beliefs in clinical practice. The aim of the investigators in this next cross-sectional case-controlled study was to investigate potential causes and consequences of reduced brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, expression in psychotic patients. They examined the association between BDNF levels and measures of stress, 
inflammation, and hippocampal volume in 49 adult first-episode psychosis patients and 30 healthy adult controls. Patients were recruited from the National Health Service in London, and controls were recruited from the same catchment area via advertisement and volunteer databases. BDNF, interleukin-6, and tumor necrosis factor alpha messenger RNA levels were measured in the leukocytes of all participants. In addition, Salivary cortisol levels were measured and information gathered about psychosocial stressors, including number of childhood traumas, number of recent stressors, and perceived stress. Finally, hippocampal volume was measured in a subsample of 19 patients using brain MRI. Patients had reduced BDNF gene expression and increased interleukin-6 and tumor necrosis factor alpha gene expression, as well as higher levels of psychosocial stressors as compared with controls. Linear regression analysis in patients showed that a history of childhood trauma and high levels of recent stressors predicted lower BDNF expression through an inflammation-mediated pathway. In turn, lower BDNF expression, increased interleukin-6 expression, and increased cortisol levels all significantly and independently predicted smaller left hippocampal volume. Biological changes activated by stress represent a significant factor influencing brain structure and function in first-episode psychosis through an effect on BDNF. The authors believe that these biological pathways should be considered in the development of future therapeutic strategies for this condition. The next study by a group of U.S. researchers reanalyzed data regarding the combined cross-sectional effect of risperidone and SSRIs on bone mineralization in boys and investigated whether variants of the serotonin transporter-linked polymorphic region genotypes interacted with SSRI treatment to affect bone mineral density. Respiridone-treated boys ages 7 to 17 years were enrolled in a cross-sectional study exploring the effect of elevated serum prolactin levels induced by respiridone on bone mineral density. The sample was divided into two groups on the basis of SSRI treatment status at enrollment. Bone mineral densities of the ultra-distal radius and the lumbar spine were measured. Multiple linear regression analyses were used. Of the 108 boys with DSM-4 clinical diagnoses, 52% had been taking an SSRI for a median duration of 2.8 years. After adjustment was made for a number of variables, there was a significant genotype-by-treatment interaction effect on total lumbar spine bone mineral density in non-Hispanic whites. The interaction effect on bone mineral density at the ultra-distal radius failed to reach statistical significance. 
Among LS genotype carriers, those treated with SSRIs had lower lumbar bone mineral density Z-scores and lower trabecular bone mineral density at the radius compared to those not treated with SSRIs. These findings suggest the potential use of genotypes to guide the safer long-term prescribing of SSRIs in youths. In the final study from the December issue, a group of U.S. researchers explored trial duration with first-episode patients, asking whether early limited improvement would predict ultimate lack of treatment response, as it does with multi-episode patients. The authors performed a post-hoc analysis of a trial involving 112 subjects with a first episode of schizophrenia or schizophreniform or schizoaffective disorder. Subjects were randomly assigned to treatment with olanzapine or risperidone and were followed for 16 weeks. Treatment response was defined as a rating of mild or better on all of the positive symptom items on the schedule for affective disorders and schizophrenia change version with psychosis and disorganization items. First, the researchers compared the cumulative response rates for each study week. Response rates increased throughout the 16-week period. The cumulative response rate was 40% by week 8 and 65% by week 16, a statistically significant difference in response rates. The rates did increase approximately 5 to 6 percentage points for each two-week interval between weeks 10 and 16, although they were not statistically different. Second, the researchers examined whether improvement in symptoms from baseline to week 2, 4, or 8 could predict response by week 16. Percentage reduction in symptom severity score at week 4, but not week 2 or 8, was significantly associated with responder status at week 16. However, examination of receiver operating characteristic curves did not suggest any level of percentage symptom reduction that would be clinically useful as a predictor of response by week 16. The authors concluded that limited early symptom improvement did not identify first episode patients who would not improve with a full 16-week trial with enough accuracy to be clinically useful. In addition to our regular articles, in our December issue, we again highlight a significant case report, this one pertaining to a patient with paranoid schizophrenia and uncontrollable violent behavior. This difficult case involves agranulocytosis, secondary to rechallenge with clozapine following severe neutropenia during previous therapy. Rechallenge with clozapine is potentially dangerous, at least for patients who have a history of severe clozapine-related agranulocytosis. This report adds to the scarce body of evidence available on this subject. I direct you to psychiatrist.com for details of this challenging case. 
This month, as usual, we offer a variety of letters and book reviews, as well as interactive activities from our CME Institute. Join us online for all of this and much, much more from the December issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.